Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Before we get started um, and do prayer, I do want to elaborate on groups a bit. Um, Some people have asked, what are groups? So, um, they're going to be similar to Bible studies, but uh, that is not all we are doing on Thursday nights. So, um, this summer we'll be discussing biblical themes, so uh, we're hopeful that throughout the year uh, our our, our groups will actually be in homes throughout the year, Uh, but for summer, for the sake of just summer, we thought we'd gather here. Um, But yeah, we'll be going through key themes in the scriptures. We'll have four different groups, uh, which we will divide off the people who sign up for groups. Uh, Nate Nate and Beth are leading a group, Sarah and Joel, Jay and Rhonda, and then Aaron and myself are leading groups this summer. But yeah, it's not simply a Bible study, but uh, a group that we can commit to for a season for the sake of helping one another grow in our spiritual formation um, to not, and and similar to what we're doing in this, uh, today's message and series, not simply know about God, but know him more, become more like him and live the way Jesus lived. Um, So not simply puffing up our head, but getting to the heart and our hands. There is in the center of your bulletin, a little half sheet. If you want to be a part of groups, we need you to fill one of these out and drop it in the box either today or next Sunday, you can also reach out to me. Um, but we do need you to sign up. Um, it, it, it really isn't a... You can, you can come check it out, but we really, uh, for the sake of groups, we really need commitment. And so we do also say that if you are unable to make uh, more, seven or more of the ten nights this summer, we do ask that you uh, not register. Uh, or if you're close to that, talk to me. But it is a commitment. It is something where uh, it is not just a Sunday morning thing where we come. No, it, it really is committing to be a part of each other's life for the summer and to invest in one another. So we do ask that you are able to do that. If you're close, talk to me. If you're like, what about six? Let's just talk. But we're really trying to aim for at least a C average here on attendance. Um, so uh, anyways. <laughs> Aside from that, uh, yes, so that's where accountability comes in and commitment. Uh, But then the other thing we'll say is on Thursday nights, uh, we are saying one of the things we are is a present group. And so what that means is not only physical presence, uh, but mental. So we will not be using devices at the groups. We will not be pulling out our phones, iPads, anything. So you need a physical Bible and you need to bring it. If you don't have a physical Bible, tell me. If you need one, I can buy you one or, or direct you to one but we will not be utilizing phones. Uh, it's the same thing that I did with my students for years. We can do it. We can do it for an hour and a half. We can handle it. Um, so if you have any grievances with that, well, sorry. Um, anyways, we could talk about it later, but that is part of respecting and committing and being present to our group. 
Aside from that, if you have any questions, please talk with me. So, I'm going to transition to prayer. Um, but before that, I want to read something. This quote sits on in the church office, framed above the desk that Kathy Neal utilizes. It's from 13 Mennonite Ministers of Pennsylvania in 1755. They wrote, It is our fixed principle, rather than take up arms to defend our king, our country, or ourselves, to suffer all that is clear to be rent from us, even life itself. And this we think, not out of contempt of a, to authority, but that herein we act agreeable to what we think in the mind and will of our Lord Jesus. Now they wrote this as the colonies were developing a sentiment to uh, have a revolution and become their own nation from the motherland, from England. Historian Richard McMaster wrote, Mennonites expressed fear, quote, that our liberty might be endangered and attended township meetings in substantial numbers. Christian Funk, a Mennonite bishop, attended the meeting in Franconia Township in then Philadelphia County. Mennonites formed about two-thirds of the meeting and evidently agreed with Bishop Funk that, quote, as a defenseless people, they could not be involved, quote, in tearing down ourselves from the king, nor, quote, institute or destroy any government. Such neutrality must have sounded like a pledge of support to the crown. Mennonites everywhere took this stand. The historian goes on to explain that through, even through the Revolutionary War, um, Mennonites, the colonists, uh, did a lot to tax the Anabaptists, sometimes 20 times the amount of regular colonists for the sake of their lack of willingness to take up arms. They even, uh, well, yeah, there's special taxes. They even sometimes unwillingly had to give up wagons, cattle, horses, grain, whatever the army needed. But still, they remained resilient in their convictions. Now, I share all this with us to remind us of our roots as Anabaptists. Not everyone here is Anabaptist, but we are an Anabaptist church. So I do want to remind you of LifeBridge's roots, which I have come to find I resonate as the way of Jesus. It's actually one of the main things that attracted me to this church and role was its Anabaptist ties. Coming from the West Coast, I didn't actually even know this was a thing. Kind of funny. Um, even when I shared with my boss, who is, my former boss, who is a historian, an American historian, university level, <laughs> he's like, they're still around, huh? I didn't know they were still doing things. Uh, he's like, Mennonites, I didn't know they were that prevalent. But I want to remind us of this. In light of the two notable recent mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, and the ensuing fear, perhaps encouragement, and even inclination to arm ourselves to the teeth for the sake of being prepared to defend ourselves, I want to keep before us the truth of the gospel to remind us of our God and Savior Jesus, to remind us that he's the Prince of Peace, 
to remind us that the way he achieved peace was not through killing others, but taking on death, to remind us that he told Peter to set down the sword, to remind us that he told that those who live by the sword will die by the sword, to remind us that the early church for centuries was not involved in any military or law enforcement, to remind us that even it, if it came to our death, God could and would still use our death for his glory, the advancement of the kingdom here as it is in heaven. And to remind us that just because our culture does one thing doesn't mean we have to do so, and just because we have a freedom to do something doesn't make it right or in line with the way of Jesus, the character of God, or his kingdom. We say this with a lot of things. Just because it's okay doesn't mean it's in line with Christ. Freedom in Christ is different than freedom in our culture and nation where we reside. And so our role as Christians in every generation is to figure out how that works for us, what the way of Jesus looks like in our culture. And sometimes we're in line, sometimes we're respected, but oftentimes the way of Jesus is persecuted, looked down upon, and so forth. This has been our Anabaptist roots, but I think it does go back all the way to the early church. I say all this um, not to really say anything about laws or anything. I, if I'm honest, um, I've never voted just because I've always lived in an area where my vote literally doesn't change a single thing. Uh, I've always lived in a very blue area, and now I live in a pretty red area. I don't think my vote would actually change a single thing. Personally, also, I would say, my Anabaptist roots, I try to remove myself from it, and then I also think I get, I start to form a god, an idol out of it, building the kingdom of my nation rather than my god. And so, personally, I've found, and then as a result, it, it uh, really helped me not love my neighbor well. Uh, and so, I've personally opted not to because... At least in this season, I don't see a biblical reason why that I have to do it, nor do I think that it is good for my soul in loving my neighbor. So I don't say this in light of laws or anything like that. I more say this in light of us. Anabaptists do not have nearly a small minority, let alone a majority, to change any sort of laws or make any sort of institute the laws or the character of Christ, nor do I think that's our role in any sort of nation legislate the law. We learned that in the Old Testament, right? The law doesn't change hearts. The gospel changes hearts. The spirit moving in and through the church changes hearts. So, I say all this to remind us, to help us in fear. Uh, it is a troubling week, um, but it's not abnormal. It's becoming, it's obviously been quite normal, the data shows. Um, but I want to give us, point us to the reality of Jesus, point us to hope, I also wanted to point us to resources. I got a lot of texts and calls this week about them. So in your bulletin, I recommended five different books, all different sorts. Just to, just to give you an idea, there's a prophetic and pastoral-oriented book called Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence by Shane Claiborne. He's a Mennonite minister. Uh, that one's interesting. He wrote it with another guy who literally his company is, they take donated guns and they beat them into tools. Uh, it's fulfilling the Isaiah prophecy where God said, I will turn their swords into plows. And so uh, if you've been to 
the university, the Mennonite University in Harrisonburg. They actually have a really cool statue of this where it's made up of a bunch of donated guns and it's got a memorial to it. Um, I thought it was really cool when Gracie and I visited last year to see that. Um, so that's a little bit more hopeful. He even says it's a little crazy, but he points out that while America is 5% of the world's population, we have over half the world's guns. And so we need to figure out as Christians what we do with that. How do we interact with that? So that's an interesting one. It's an autobiographical book by a gal who was endured and lived through a mass shooting called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. There's a the two theological ones that more work through the scriptures and try and sort through the ethics of it. If you're interested in that, those are God and guns and then nonviolence. Uh, I really like nonviolence. He goes through the entirety of scriptures. He also answers pretty practical questions. But then there's a practical book, A Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence. And I included just the summaries of the books in there for you. If you have any questions, recommendations, want to go through them, want to talk with them, I love talking through this stuff. So if you're like, I've never thought this through, love to talk with you about it. Let me know. Um, but yes, so I have a prayer from the Christian Reformed Church in light of this shooting, this recent one. It's in your bulletin. I'm just going to read it for us. Lord, in our shock and confusion, we come before you in our grief and despair, in the midst of hate, in our sense of helplessness, in the face of violence, we lean on you. For the families who have been killed, we pray. For the shooters and their family, help us to pray, Lord. For the communities that have lost members, their anger, grief, fear, we pray. For the churches striving to be your light in darkness, Beyond our comprehension, we pray. In the face of hatred, may we, claim, may we claim love, Lord. May we love those far off and those near. May we love those who are strangers and those who are friends. May we love those who we agree with and understand. And even more so, Lord, those who we consider to be our enemies. Kiri a liaison, Lord have mercy. Heal our sin-sick souls. Make these wounds whole, Lord. Amen. Well, I'm going to transition actually into morning's message. Um, so, last week we began a series that will be sort of pop-up. We'll be going through the 1995 Confession of Faith. And uh, last Sunday, we talked about the Trinity. And again, today we're talking more, we're taking Article 1, but Part 2 of it, talking more through God's attributes. So, with that being said, again, reminder, if you guys have questions, I will take some at the end. But if you don't, that is okay. Um, I did also realize, because last week a certain student sent me a corrective text message on my iPad, uh, about an analogy I gave, which I've yet to research, so if I'm wrong, I'll admit that. Um, but you can text me if you're nervous about raising your hand. So if you have an actual question, but you don't want to raise your hand or anything, you can text my number uh, if you have it. If you don't have it, 
All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, so to keep before us, the goal of studying the things of God. J.I. Packer, uh, he's since a saint. He passed a few years back. But in his book, Knowing God, he wrote, Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. It's not to know God, know about God, it's to know him. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God who attrib- whose attributes, or attributes they are. So, we're asking the question, what is God like? We're continuing that. So, not simply to gain the knowledge and to know what, ex- what to expect from God or even how to manipulate him, but rather so we can know, commune with Uh, commune with him, be in relationship with him, worship him, our maker, our creator, our sustainer, our God. So, think that when Jesus, uh, when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, so not simply your mind, but with all of your being. And so loving him, knowing him, is not simply knowing about him, but true understanding is where to goes from our brain into our soul, out through our hands, through our body, the way we think, feel, act in this world. Now, for over two millennia, humanity has been trying to figure out God, a deity, or deities, plural, how many there are, trying to determine whether or not to believe in one, and if so, what are they like? The 4th century B.C., Epicurus, a Greek philosopher, wrote... Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? In recent centuries, Freud, the renowned late 19th century and early 20th century neuropsychologists, attributed this wrestling of humanity with the concept of God as a way for humanity to reconcile their own limitations in our own development of technology or even just, uh, well, yeah, let's just say technological advancements. He wrote, long ago, man formed an ideal conception of omnipotence and omniscience, which he embodied in his gods. So someone was thinking about this, it was a nice day, kind of bored, thought of this idea of omniscience and omnipotence, And it's like, well, what do we do with that? Who can be that? We can't be that. Let's make a god or gods. He continued, whatever seemed unattainable to his desires or forbidden to him, he attributed to these gods. Now he has himself approached very near to realizing this ideal. He has nearly become a god himself. His point was that as we developed as a society, as humanity, uh, technological advances, we will advance past the point of needing a god or gods, that we were on the cusp of it in his generation. And again, another uh, atheist uh, astronomer this time, Carl Sagan, in the early 20th century wrote, or mid-20th century, he wrote, with Freud's assessment of humanity's uh, interest in a potential existence of God, he wrote it just a little bit more condescending. He wrote, anything you don't understand, you attribute to God. He's talking to us as if we're simpletons. God for you is where you sweep away all the mysteries of the world, 
all the challenges to our intelligence. You simply turn your mind off and say, God did it. That's been the plight so far throughout human history, and interwoven throughout that has been uh, Eastern religions, Roman Catholicism, uh, and so forth, wrestling with the realities of God. This morning I challenge us to utilize our minds. Uh, let's not turn off our minds, but use the intellectual fac faculties that we believe God made us with. And think through the question, what is God like? So there's been a couple categories that people utilize for this. If we've heard these terms, maybe. Uh, they say God has incommunicable and communicable attributes. So basically, incommunicable means that only God can possess these. We don't have any way of relating with these. Think um, omniscience, meaning he knows everything. Um, and then communicable, being things that are a little more able for us to obtain. Think love, think justice, that we are able to embody ourselves. Another way is uh, transcendence and imminence, but I'm going to utilize the terms this morning, break them into two things, e uh, two categories, his eternality and his goodness. But remember, understanding God is impossible. We can't know him fully, at least not in this life. Otherwise, he wouldn't be fully God. But that's why, for us, God speaks to us in our own time, in our own place. That's why throughout human history, he has communicated with his people, in particular through his word, most notably in Jesus. So a couple things, examples of this. Uh, back in the day, when we thought the earth was flat, we say, uh, you know, Jesus ascended into heaven above, right? Is heaven really up in the clouds? No, that's why in the 20th century, when we went to space, the astronauts got up there, and what is one of the things they say? There's no God up here. Yes, because we thought back in the day that God went up literally, physically, rather than metaphysically or something beyond our own comprehension. So God in that time communicated to the first century in that manner that, God, that Jesus was ascending up into the sky, and then he was up in the clouds, and he's just chilling up in the clouds, right? Well, no. Visually, it looked that way. And he could have literally done that, but he is more in God's space. This is just an example of how God communicates to us, uses temporary cultural means for us to understand, get a, get a taste, get a sample of what God is like. Same thing last week, we utilized the term to the ends of the earth. There is no end of the earth. The earth is round. But in those days, they thought there was an end of the earth. And so... For them, understanding, speaking to them in those days, in that time and place, if Jesus would have said, you're going to take the gospel around the globe, they would have been like, what? What does that even mean? The earth is a globe? So, God speaks to us, to his people, in a particular way, in a particular manner, so that they would be able to understand him in their place, understand little aspects of him. But we will never completely, in this life, understand him fully. So don't get overwhelmed by these. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed even just looking at some of these things that we're going to talk about. But I want us to understand a bit of God's incredible nature. So, <clears throat> um, Stanley Grenz, he's a, he's a 
20th century theologian. He, he passed a, a few years back from a brain aneurysm, but uh, I'm utilizing his book, Theology for the C Community of God, a lot. But he wrote as an introduction to this, in conceiving of God, we dare neither place him so far beyond the world that he can't enter into relationship with his creatures, nor collapse him so thoroughly into the world processes that he cannot stand over the creation which he made. So we're going to try and keep God as God up there, just grander than us, but also show how his uh, goodness extends and we are the beneficiaries of this. So his eternality is the up in the sky, the, the grand uh, characteristics of God, whereas the goodness being shadows of us understanding how he relates to us. So let's talk about the first one, God's eternality. So eternal is not simply as this removed outside of our temporal realm that, that's untouched, unaffected by events, meaning that when we say God lasts forever, that he is forever him being outside of the realm of time or unaffected by these events, um, the God in the scriptures isn't this impassable and removed, but present and near to his people. Here's an example. Well, Grenz wrote this, that God is present in all time and therefore all time is present to God. Here's what this means. We've got a couple of these. There's three omnis. So, the first one being omnipresence. We say God is omnipresent. I'm going to utilize the word, uh, the scripture, I'm going to jump around a bit here, but Psalm 90, verse 2. The psalmist wrote, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So, omni, meaning all. Present, meaning present. So God is ever-present. He's all-present. He's everywhere. God is present to all things. Grenz writes, but to understand the attribute correctly, we must turn the, defini the definition around. Omnipresence means that all things are present to God in themselves, whether they be events in our past, our present, or our future. Think this, think of the covenants that God would tell his people throughout the ages, I will be your God, I will be with you. Or when Jesus left, he said, go forth, I will be with you till the end of the age. Think of Jesus when he came. John says that he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled amongst us is what that literally means. That he set up his dwelling place with humanity. He is forever present with us. What does that mean? How does that look? These are the incommunicable. These are the eternal realities of God that are pretty hard for us to comprehend. I don't have incredible theoretical or philosophical answers for you. But this inability to completely fathom God, again, points us to be in awe of him. Another one, omniscience. So we got omnipresence. He's everywhere. He's all present. Omniscience. Think again, omni, all, science, knowing. Science, S-C-I-E-N-C-E. -E. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. Medieval theologians thought, they debated whether or not God knew all possible things too. 
That's a fun thought, but does that matter? Not really. The point is that God knows anything and everything about us all throughout all human history, past, present, and future. He knows what is to come. The debate being, yeah, whether or not, basically a multiverse is what it sounds like for those of you comic book fans. Um, debating whether or not God knows all the multiple realities and the possibilities of what that could have looked like if you went right instead of left, if you married them instead of them, if you didn't get married, if so on and so forth. But God is all-knowing. We see this in he, uh, 1 John 3.20. I'll give you a couple other verses, but we can't jump to them all. If you want to look this up later, Psalm 147, verse 5. And then Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, shed light on this. But I'm going to re read 1 John 3, verse 20. John writes, whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. That's halfway through a sentence, so that's why it sounds like that's, that's not a complete sentence. It isn't. But he says, and God knows everything. So, that means he's omniscient. He knows all things. And the last eternal attribute that we believe of God is he is omnipotent. So again, omni, O-M-N-I, and then potence, P-O-T-E-N-C-E, meaning he is all-powerful. Again, theologians of old have debated this as I flip over to Isaiah 55.1. A fun debate they had was whether or not God was so powerful that, that he could create a rock so heavy that even he couldn't lift. Fun little nerdy theological debates and conversations. The things you could think of when you didn't have TV and Netflix and Stranger Things to binge all weekend. Um, don't tell me what happened if you watched it. I haven't finished. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 11. The, writer, the prophet writes, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's saying, whatever I say is going to happen, it's going to happen. Whatever I say, it's going to go down. He's in control. He's all-powerful. That's what om omnipotence means when we say God is omnipotent. Again, Grand, uh, Stanley Grenz writes, it's his ability to bring to completion his design for creation. Now, here's the cool thing about omnipotence. It's like future-oriented. We can trust that if we know that God created us to image him and this grand story of redemption throughout human history and, and biblical redemption story, we know that God will bring to completion that which he started. That's what Paul wrote in Philippians. That is part of his omnipotence. We've seen it carried out. He's been faithful. We see this. We have this guarantee because of the cross and resurrection that God will do what he said he will do, and he can do what he said he will do. But Gren summarized, God knows all things as the one who directs creation to its intended goal. C.S. Lewis, in the problem of pain, <clears throat> wrote that God's omnipotence means power 
to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. So even God, in some ways, because of his character, is confined to the standards of his own being. Sounds weird. If you're not tracking, it's okay. Lewis says, you may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. This is no limit to his power. If you choose to say, God can give a creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix to them the two other words, God can. He concludes, it remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. Not because his power meets any obstacles, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk it about God. This means that while God is all-powerful, he does create within um, the realm of reason. So he does utilize miracles, but he does also work within the manner of his character. That's a lot. But that helps us know that we can trust God, trust him as he initiates that he will not deceive us, that knowing that God is good, that God is love, that God is peace, that therefore he will be faithful, that he will not turn on us. And then how does this extend to the second category of attributes, the second category being God's goodness? These are things we can perhaps understand a little bit more. These are more moral attributes of God. There's kind of these two dimensions to it. Grins wrote, At all times, God is totally upright, fair, just, and righteous in his treatment of his creatures. That is, he's holy. But at the same time, God is gracious, benevolent, and long-suffering with us. He is compassionate. So we're going to break it down into these two categories, God's holiness and God's compassion. Now, holiness has three meanings in Scripture. The word is, is there a lot throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, that God is holy. One being his divine transcendence, that he's different than creation. He's other. We are not like him. We really, the best word I can think of is he is just, he is other. We are this and he's just something else. Another manner that holy, holiness is used is his uniqueness set apart from all the other gods. All throughout the scriptures, we talk about that the prophets and the writers often distinguish God as set apart from other gods that those days are worshiping. And similar to us, the gods of our days, God is, stands alone above it all. He is holy. He is unique. But the one we're looking at here is his moral upright, uprightness. He's just. He's a righteous God treating his creatures fairly. God also seeks justice and will judge humanity according to his standard, and that's where his compassion comes in. 
This is what distinguishes the God of the scriptures, where God is not just this righteous, just God, but he is a compassionate God. If God didn't have compassion or empathy, um, we'd all be doomed. But our God is a God of compassion. And this is all over the scriptures. God does not interact with his creation on the basis of his holiness alone, but also on the basis of his compassion for his creation. In Nehemiah 9.17, the writer writes, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders, of the wonders that you performed among them. <laughs> the wonders. The wonders you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, and merciful. And you've heard this as you've read the scriptures over and over. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The prophet Joel wrote, rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. And again in Jonah, the prophet Right? He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said while I, was still my own co- while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. Over and over you see gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, relenting from punishment. That is who God is, his holiness, is coupled with his compassion. And this, is, this stems back all the way to when God first revealed himself to Moses in Exodus. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, at this point, the chapter where I'm going to zone in on, God is interacting with Moses, starting to reveal himself to God's people in the desert, to the nation of Israel at that time. He's about to give them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And it says, The Lord passed before Moses. He proclaimed, God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And how does Moses respond? Moses quickly bowed down to the ground and worshiped. He said, if, I now, er, if now I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, I pray, let my Lord God go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked, stubborn people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Compassion is the best way to describe how God has responded and does respond to humanity and all of creation. It's all throughout the scriptures. If you want to look these up later, you can look up Psalm 145, 9 or Isaiah 63, 9. But here's Isaiah earlier. The prophet writes, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, all, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. 
Now, it's important for us to note that this compassion is completely independent of anything we can do, right? It's God's mercy and grace extended to us. We don't, have, we don't have to do anything to earn this compassion. In Romans 9, Paul summarizes, he says, for, for God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul summarized it, so it depends not on human will, but on God who shows mercy. So, there's nothing we do to earn God's compassion. Nothing. Instead, the only thing we do in ourselves actually requires God's compassion, right? The only thing we actually do in our own will is actually why we need God's compassion, because our will is initially bent in opposition towards him. But that's where his compassion remedies us and has been seeking his people out for ages. Because the way of God relates with his people in creation can be summarized in his compassion. That's why God can choose to relate with us despite our opposition to his character and the way of Jesus. So humanity witnessed his compassion most notably in Jesus. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.3, he said, By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This reality of who God is also gives us our future hope, our future assurance that his compassion wasn't just for the days behind us, but for the days before us and for all of creation. We can trust that God will continue to have compassion on us because God is who he is. This is a part of who he is. It isn't something he decides to do one day. This is a part of his reality. This is a part of his nature. And most other attributes that we can understand fall under that category of God's goodness. His holiness and his compassion. They balance each other out. Where holiness on its own, man, we're kind of doomed. But thank God that he is also a compassionate God. So why does this matter to us? And here's where we get to the, okay, that was a lot of theology. Where do we get to? Well, this matters to us for a few reasons. The more I read this type of stuff, the more I interact with um, the reality of God, the study of the Godhead and his character, in some sense it gives me a headache, but in another way, it does. It's true, because it's a lot of big words and a lot of stuff, and a lot of old dead guys and gals have done thousands of years of theology and writing and theory on this, and it's, it's just a lot to comprehend, and I can only read a few pages. But all that to say, it points me personally to God's majesty, to his glory. It leads me to worship. I think that's why this matters. Knowing that it's so out there, so abstract in some sense and yet so real leads us to worship that this God of the universe so wonderful and majestic and yet so personal and compassionate towards us. But then other areas, I think it leads us and, and, and Grin summarized it this way, he said this leads us to both bold prayer 
and bold action. He wrote, the God we serve is faithful in bringing his creation to completion. All events are present to him. He's cognizant of all events and he's capable of affecting his plan. But this God also invites us to cooperate with him in the completion of the divine program of history. Meaning this, we depend on him with, for everything. Fervent prayer. Fervent petition. But then at the same time, it's coupled with obedient action. That's where, um, you know, a lot of the stuff even this week, where that's where even that, that book that I recommended earlier, where thoughts and prayers aren't enough. Because faith without deeds is dead, as Jesus' little brother said. We are to believe in, pray to, but then act to follow in all of life. How much we say, I'll pray for you about something, but then we forget them, right? We forget our neighbor, we forget them. How easy that is to do that. I know for myself that is the case. But you know, there, there's some lovely people in our congregation that are very much have been able to pray, and then man, all of a sudden, we receive something on our door. And you're like, oh, that was beautiful. That was faith and deeds. That was praying for us, but then also embodying the character of Jesus. Bold action, bold prayer. It comes together. That's why Jesus' little brother James also wrote, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, but, but compassion. 1 Peter 3, Peter wrote, Finally, all of you have unity of the Spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And Paul in Galatians 6, to the church, wrote, Bear one another's burdens. And in this way, in you doing this, you will fulfill the law of Jesus. I'm going to close with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke 10. But that's where I think this relates, that in this we fulfill the law of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, he records Jesus giving a very famous parable that we often hear this even in secular culture, utilizing this term, a Good Samaritan, right? And sometimes it's just for someone helping a cat out of a tree. And sometimes it's amazing things. But let's see what this actually uh, points to for us. So in verse 25, in chapter 10, verse 25, Luke writes that a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The guy answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. Okay, we think we're done. But the guy, probably just like all of us, is like, we've all got our list of yeah buts. 
Yeah, but what, not them. Yeah, but are you sure about them? Are you sure about that person? Do I really have to love them? So he says, but wanting to justify himself, he asks Jesus, mm, who is my neighbor? Jesus replies, I love it. This is like, uh, I feel like this is any grandparent uh, where you ask a question and then they just tell a story from their day. Uh, sorry, grandparents in the room. But <laughs> don't give a direct answer, but it's like this great moral story and you're just like, oh, yeah, that's true. Um, Jesus doesn't just say who my neighbor is. He just goes, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he sees him, when he saw him, he takes a beeline, passes on the other side of the street. He does one of these, like, like when you're walking into the grocery store and the girls are selling Girl Scout cookies and you're like, I'm going through the other entrance or I'm going to be on my phone or anything like that or I'm going to do phone-in order up. Um, or yeah, if you don't want to do the, like at the register, have to digitally tip, you're like, well, I'm just going to do the phone-in order so they don't actually see me that I didn't tip them because it's carry-out. Why am I tipping them? Uh, anyways. <laughs> but those types of things. He does a little, hmm. That's the priest. This is the holy dude. And he's like, he, he kind of pretends he's not, he's not there. Doesn't want to deal with him. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite, an, a, another God adherer. says when he came to the place in Psalm, he passes on the other side too. But then in verse 33, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near to him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. Now think this. If you are the person beat up on the ground, think of the person that you have the hardest time thinking God will love. The person in your mind that you're like, we've all got him. We've all got someone. Who is that person where you're like, God's grace might be beyond them. That's the person. There's this deep hatred and tension going back generations between these two people groups. And he's the one, and it says he was moved with pity. This is the same phrase that Luke used prior to this, that Jesus, when he saw a, 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 a single mom having lost her son, it says Jesus was moved with pity having seen this lady. So he's using the same terminology here. He's moved with pity. Some of your translations say he had compassion on her. And then what? The Samaritan goes to him. He bandages his wounds. Man, if this guy's grossed out by blood, that's pretty intense. Having poured oil and wine on them. Okay, now he's giving up some of his resources. This is not a couple bucks. Then he put, on, put him on his own animal. So he says, I'll walk in the desert heat. I'm going to walk. This guy's going to take the route. He, he's going to get the rest. Brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. So he puts him up in a hotel. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is two days of your wages. Okay, we're talking hundreds of bucks here. And he pays. He gave the innkeeper and says, take care of this man. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. So not only that, he's willing to extend more debt for the person. Let me know how much it's going to cost. I've got it. I've got the bill. 
Then Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The man responds, you you can just kind of feel the like, the one who showed him mercy. You can just kind of feel that begrudging answer where you're like, oh man, Jesus really didn't give me any way out of this. And Jesus just says to him, go and do likewise. And that's it. Now, what does that have to do with God's character? Well, I think it demonstrates God's compassion. It demonstrates for us who God is, the compassion he has for his people, and that he calls us to have. Because in reality, when he says, go and do likewise, who can really love like this? How how many of us, our own inclination is to love someone like this? I know it's not mine. It's definitely not mine on most days. In a lot of hours of the day, I am not like, I see that hurting person, I'm going to drop everything to go help them. I'm going to delay my work. I'm going to delay time with my family. I'm going to delay my leisure time, whatever that may be. I'm going to sacrifice my days off, my income, my future income, an unknown amount that he gives. I I posit that I don't think any of us can love like this on our own. And I think the reality of this parable is that, uh, I think I've said this before, that Jesus is, is really painting the picture of himself, that he is the true good Samaritan. It's not a moral story. We often take these parables as like, hey, we gotta go, here's this life lesson, go do this. But the reality is you see Jesus in this and you're like, oh, Jesus did this. Jesus was the guy who we treated him like enemies, right? The scriptures say that when we were enemies to God. But we're, we're battered and beaten and robbed and stripped down on the side of the road because of sin, because of the weight of evil, because of the realities of human existence in this life. And often everyone lets us down, the people we think should help us, the priest, the Levite. They walk away, they pretend they don't hear, they pretend they don't have time. Maybe they don't. That could be reality too. But the Samaritan, the person we've been in opposition with for all of human history, Jesus, comes down. He has compassion on us. He binds up our wounds. He anoints us with oil and wine. Then he puts us on the animal that he, as a king, deserves, is entitled to. And he walks our walk. He walks the, the plight that we had to walk. He does it for us. And he takes us to a place. He sets us up. He pays to restore us. But he also says, whatever debts are coming, I've got that too. Jesus is the true Good Samaritan. And when he says, go and do likewise, it's a foreshadow of what he's going to do and that when we see this, when when we are captivated by the reality of Jesus, of his compassion, of his goodness, we will then be spirit-empowered, just motivated to love others the way Jesus loved us. This is beyond us. We're, we're, We're incapable of doing this on our own. The moment we're like, I've got to do this to earn my place for, before Jesus, no, that's, that's, that's the wrong thinking. 
that's trying to earn our place. Rather, knowing that God already did this through Jesus, then recalibrates us. It, it fuels the flame of our faith and action to go and love others like this. That's why love and compassion, these are fruit of the Spirit. And this is where we'll wrap up. And in Galatians 5, Paul writes that by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no loss against such things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This love is the first fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions. And this gets us back to last week, that God eternally existing in love, in community, in Trinity, in a mutually exclusive, committed Godhead relationship where he is three in one. He is love in itself. Remember, he's not loving as if he adhered to a higher standard. No, he is the embodiment of love. And us who are in Christ now, we've received the Spirit. And one of the fruit in light of this is this love, to go on, to go be the hands and feet of Jesus, to go carry out religion that's pure and undefiled, to continue in bold prayer and action, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. That's why this matters. That's why knowing God, not knowing about him, but knowing him, sitting at his feet, whether it be sitting in, some of us like to behold God in the, the beauty of nature. I like to behold God in, in the beauty of uh, what his nature made. Uh, really cool skyscrapers and architecture uh, and good coffee. Either way, man, whatever that is, whatever means you are passionate about that the spirit has wired you with to behold the goodness of God, that's why we do this. Beholding him allows us, helps us become like him. Beholding him allows us to be with him and then become like him. And in so doing, we will do what he did in our community. We're going to invite the band up. Um, do we have any questions on this one? It's totally okay if not. I don't mind it because this is a hard subject. Sweet. We did it. You guys get God. Awesome. No one laughs at that cheese. Uh, <laughs> I love it. It's okay. I, don't, I can't fathom him either, but it's good. I think it's a good place to be. Let's pray. Uh, but in this time, we respond in uh, musical worship and in uh, giving of our financial offerings. Uh, we respond in prayerful reflection, contemplation, and, and confession. Um, and then, yeah, we sing out in light of God's compassion. Um, our confession, think, think of those two components of, of his goodness, his holiness and his compassion. And we confess where we don't line up with his holiness, but then we receive and receive forgiveness in light of his compassion. So, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, God, that you... 
Can you reveal yourself to us? Who are we worthy to be revealed in? To be understanding and to be uh, in relationship with you, to be utilized by you, to be co-heirs with you and partners with you. But God, you have made it so through Jesus. We thank you for that. God, may we as people not go numb to this. Before us time, God, maybe cancel some of our plans, whatever it may be, walk out certain commitments in our life that we might open up space in our lives, quiet the noise around us to, to sit with you, God, and hold you on a regular basis, to contemplate just the crazy realities of who you are, the other nature and how unfathomable are your ways. And may, may it lead us uh, to both somewhat trembling, but also joy, knowing that you are of you are magnificent, you are glorious, and yet you are personal, compassionate, you are good. God, we thank you for that, we thank you for relating with us, for being our God, for being our Maker, for being our Savior, for being our guide and our teacher, for sustaining. We lift all these things in your name, Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.